0: Welcome to episode 22 of the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Alex Shadid. If you're at work or school, just take a quick look around at the laptops your peers are using. How many of them have tape over their webcams? This is becoming an increasingly common sight in today's interconnected world. A recent poll found that 90% of Canadians feel that they're losing control of their personal information. Much of this has to do with the pace at which technology is evolving. New innovations are constantly pushing the boundaries of what's possible, but with them come legitimate privacy concerns that we as a society need to address. So what's being done on the policy end of things? Well, last week, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada submitted its annual report to Parliament titled Time to Modernize 20th Century Tools. The report calls on government to update Canada's legislative, legal and regulatory frameworks to better protect Canadians' privacy. I spoke with the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Daniel Therrien, to learn more about the report. So joining me now on the podcast is the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Daniel Terrien. Commissioner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So one of the first lines that was in the annual report to Parliament uh, that your office submitted yesterday was, we are left with 20th century tools to deal with 21st century problems. Why did you feel it was important to open your report with such a bold statement?
1: Well, uh, it's obvious uh, to uh, everyone, I think, that uh, technology uh, is making it much easier uh, for both companies and uh, government to collect, to uh, store, and to share information. Uh, Technology brings us several advantages. Uh, Commercially, we have all kinds of services. That come with it. The government can uh, improve its services with new technology, but technology does bring this uh, ability to uh, collect, store, and share information. And the laws that we have in place uh, in Canada, particularly on the public sector side, in the Privacy Act, uh, precede uh, many technological uh, developments. The Privacy Act dates from 1983. That's even before the Internet. Uh, So laws uh, cannot be changed every six months, I realize that. But if uh, privacy is to be protected, uh, both in regards to the public sector and the private sector, there needs to be a, a combination of solutions. Law is not the only solution, but law needs to be amended from time to time to keep up with technological developments.
0: So technology is changing fast. Uh, how do you make sure that legislation is keeping up with the policy process when it moves at a much slower rate?
1: Sure. Um, so I think, uh, first of all, it, it, it would be a good idea if uh, privacy laws were amended, say, every five years. One of our recommendations uh to amend the Privacy Act is that there be this requirement to amend the Act every five years, uh, as exists more theoretically than really. But uh, for the private sector legislation, Pipeda, that's one thing. Um, but uh, even if laws are, are reviewed every so often, uh, another part of the solution, I think, is that we need to. Uh, be written uh, in a in a flexible way based on general principles, uh, and PIPEDA uh, was drafted exactly that way. So we we're not it's not as though we have uh, an absence of rules, an absence of protection, and the principles-based approach of PIPEDA uh, is actually a good approach. But even if you have that approach. Uh, technology uh, will require that uh, you amend your laws from time to time. And particularly uh, on the private sector side, the the, uh, latest developments have to do with uh, big data analytics, uh, the Internet of Things, and so on. So even if PIPEDA is principles-based, Its uh, fundamental principle to ensure protection is that consumers should give informed consent before a company uh, can collect and use information. And with uh, big data, with uh, the current advertising uh, practices of companies, with the Internet of Things, uh, we're no longer in a world where, uh, as in, say, 20 years ago, companies were collecting information on a one-on-one basis. It was a transactional relationship between service provider and uh, consumer. So the consent issue was pretty clear then. But now the service provider collects information to provide the service, but also for other purposes, such as advertising or perhaps using it for other purposes uh, made possible by big data analytics. So in that context where even the company does not necessarily know uh, what use it will put the information to, the consent model uh, is, is under challenge.
0: Do you think that Canadians really understand the true extent of the privacy risks that they're exposed to? Because it seems that it's coming from all angles nowadays. I mean, you have the, the corporate element, the private element, and also the public element that you have to worry about.
1: Um, well, if you look at uh, public opinion surveys, for instance, uh, the answer to that is, is uh, absolutely not people are, are not sufficiently aware of privacy risk. They are concerned. Uh, Public opinion surveys uh, routinely say that Canadians, but not only Canadians, people uh, all over the world, are uh, very concerned about uh, privacy and that they're losing control of their information. So there's this anxiety out there. People use Internet services because you cannot function in a modern society without doing that. But they're doing that while being uh, very concerned about what that means to, to their privacy. Uh, people also in Canada and abroad feel that they do not have sufficient information to protect their privacy properly. Uh, so there's a, a gap in terms of, uh, of information, how to protect one's privacy. Uh, So it's a very challenging world, made challenging in large part by the speed and breadth uh, of technological change. So we we have our our work cut out for us. Uh, In part, the solution is to uh, review the legal framework uh, within which these transactions uh, occur. But we also have a public education mandate. But public education does not is not only a responsibility of the of my office companies also have obligations and have should shouldn't uh, give better information to consumers on uh, what to expect when uh, their information is collected, so it's it's a it's a it's a huge
0: challenge. Do you mind going further into the public education part of it? Uh, because I find that there is a lot of information available online, not only from your office but generally online about how to protect yourself in uh, today's information ecology. Yet a lot of people seem hesitant or think that it's too complex to take on, or that it won't affect them. Uh, what do you think? Uh, what can the government do to better communicate uh, these privacy issues and this public education to Canadians?
1: Um, well we're we're trying to do our part uh, it's true that uh, at the OPC we tried to make certain information available and we just uh, revamped our uh, website actually to make it more user friendly so we we have some obligation, that we're trying to do uh, our best to make uh, tools available. Uh, but I guess it depends on on, uh, on segments of the population. There are uh, segments of the population who uh, have been uh, growing up with technology, uh, who uh, are more knowledgeable about the advantages and disadvantages. Others, uh, people uh, of a certain age, uh, are, are just uh, lost in this environment. And uh, either they're not uh, entering that environment, which is, a, which is a problem both for them because they're not getting the advantage uh, of these services uh, and, and also because they are at risk because they don't know. Uh, so it depends on on, uh, on various populations, the level of, of awareness and uh, protection.
0: One of the things that you brought up or your office brought up in the uh, annual report was an absence of oversight in uh, Canada's security establishment. Um, do you mind going a little bit further into that? Yes. Um,
1: so. When Bill C51 was uh, introduced in Parliament in 2015, uh, I I made two main concerns uh, about the bill and others made similar concerns. One had to do with the uh, breadth of the powers given to national security agencies, but the other was oversight. Uh, I, I was concerned with the fact that there was insufficient oversight over the activities of a number of national security agencies. To be clear, uh, there's oversight currently for three national security agencies there are the RCMP, CSIS, and the CSE. Uh, but there are 17 national security agencies authorized by C51 to uh, collect information for national security purposes. So 14 of the 17 do not have uh, oversight uh, by specialized bodies. That's a gap. Uh, another gap was that until uh, recently, uh, there was no parliamentary oversight of national security uh, agencies. And Canada, in that regard, was uh, in, in, a, in an exceptional situation because in most countries, uh, parliamentarians do have oversight over national security Uh, The new government has tabled a bill recently uh, proposing to create a parliamentary uh, oversight committee for national security. That's a positive development. But even once that is adopted, uh, there will remain a gap in terms of uh, oversight by experts uh, of national security uh, activities, uh, and that that remains a gap.
0: So what would this oversight look like, not necessarily the parliamentary one, but greater oversight institutionally overseeing these 17 institutions?
1: Um, well, there are, there are three bodies currently uh, with jurisdiction. I have jurisdiction over privacy issues, not all of the national security activities of the 17. Uh, if there was, say, uh, expert uh, oversight of, uh, of 17, uh, you can envisage uh, a number of potential models. One would be that there would be one super body of experts uh, with jurisdiction over uh, all of the 17 uh, agencies. The advantage of that is that uh, this uh, oversight body would not work in silo it would have a a global picture of national security agencies uh, across government uh, one downside might be uh, the lack of expertise into the work of each and every one of these bodies so that's one potential model another model would be <clears throat> to add to the number of bodies so more of them uh, in addition to the three existing ones, um, so that all 17 uh, are the subject of of oversight. Uh, So more expertise into individual agencies, uh, but then you would need uh, to uh, authorize these various bodies to speak to one another so that uh, they have a, a picture uh, of what happens in government generally. One of the problems with the current oversight regime by experts is that, as I say, there are three distinct bodies for CSIS, the RCMP, and the CSC, and I have jurisdiction over privacy, but we cannot, the four bodies in existence, we cannot share information about our specific activities, our specific investigations, such that we, we work in silos, uh, which is a problem.
0: So th- that's another thing that I wanted to bring up is the fact that I would imagine that a lot of these institutions are a little bit hesitant to have more oversight because it might impede on, A, the secretive sure. element of their work, and B, the speed element of their work. I would imagine that with, if there's a pressing <coughs> uh, security uh, issue at hand that they would want to deal with it quickly and not have to go through you know, layers of red tape or something like that. Uh, how is the response uh, coming from these institutions to the idea of greater oversight?
1: They they are reluctant. They have historically been reluctant uh, to have more oversight uh, for much of the same reasons that you've just outlined. In terms of secrecy, uh, risks that uh, the secrecy of their operations might be uh, at risk, Uh, the bodies that exist currently uh, have security clearances, and I, I do not think there's been any case where uh, national security information has been uh, improperly disclosed. So I I don't think that's a a concern. In terms of uh, whether speed, as you say, or uh, whether uh, a national security agency might not be able to perform an operation while being uh, supervised by an oversight body at the same time, Uh, That that is a a concern. Normally, oversight bodies um, review the activities uh, of national security agencies after the fact uh, or from a policy basis. So, operationally, I think uh, people of good intention can work it out so that uh, the oversight does not impede uh, the actual implementation of, a, of an operation
0: your office i believe released also a discussion paper on how c51 should be amended um if c51 were to be amended or in fact just completely eradicated if they got rid of c51 they've repealed it um would that bring canadian would that bring Canada's, Canada's security establishment back to a normal status quo where rights are relatively respected? Or is there elements beyond C-51 that need to be addressed within Canada's security establishment?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, and I'll, I'll answer by referencing the latest consultation process that was initiated by the new government. You need to look at... The issue of the balance between uh, protecting the public and rights, including privacy, you need to look at this in terms of the legislation as a whole. C51 is only part of the legislative framework, uh, which uh, gives powers to national security agencies and has parameters to protect privacy and other rights. Um, If C51 did not exist, you would still need to look at the legislative framework that was in existence before that. And that legislative framework, for one thing, uh, allowed uh, national security agencies after September 2001 to share information with uh, other states, which had the effect of uh, exposing certain people to torture. So that's that's the worst-case scenario. I'm not saying that this happens regularly, uh, but it did happen, in fact, uh, and before C-51 was in force. So C-51 raises certain issues in terms of of, uh, human rights and privacy, uh, but it is only one aspect of a larger legislative framework and uh, what I will recommend in the consultations that the government is uh, undertaking is to look at this as a whole and not only focus on C-51.
0: Would you say that the potential privacy infringements that are posed by Canada's security establishment in their uh, intelligence operations merit the actual threat that's posed externally to Canadians from national security threats?
1: That's that's the uh, million dollar question. Uh, so there are threats to national security. There are th- there are threats to our safety as individuals uh, caused by by terrorism, and uh, it is absolutely normal that uh, governments seek to uh, analyze these threats and have the legislation necessary to uh, to address these threats. That's normal, uh, but. With uh, new technology, for instance, uh, addressing these threats means uh, monitoring the Internet in part, and uh, that that raises risks in terms of uh, surveilling the activities of uh, law-abiding citizens. <clears throat> so the threats to national security, uh, yes, do justify... Uh, certain measures, and they justify modernizing uh, the laws so that Canada can address these threats. But every time you, you look at these laws, you need to think at the same time uh, about the balance uh, between security and, and rights. And uh, the laws that we adopt should not uh, affect the, the values that we have as, as a society and, and our charter rights. Well, that's the that's the difficult question but this is something that needs to to be paid attention to uh, day in day out uh, and this there's no uh, there's no one size fits all and one permanent solution to these issues you need to assess the risk on the to, to security you need to adapt your framework but as you adapt your framework you need to ensure that you're not uh, Uh, adopting solutions that are contrary to uh, our values as a democratic society.
0: So we obviously hear about fringe issues that come out every so often. For example, uh, the CSE's metadata collection activities and how they inadvertently collected metadata uh, on Canadian citizens. Mm -hmm. On the whole, though... Would you say that Canada's security establishment does a good job at respecting Canadians' privacy rights other than these fringe issues that come, ever, come out every so often?
1: Um, it's difficult to say. We, we, uh, in our latest report, uh, we report on the fact that we've had discussions with that uh, organization uh, on the incident uh, that was... Uh, Uh, Also, the report, uh, the subject of a report by Mr. Pruf, the CSC commissioner, a year or two ago. Uh, So, we don't often uh, look at the activities of the uh, communication security establishment. Uh, In in the case in question, uh, the CSC did the right thing in suspending uh, the program in question after discovering that it it was inadvertently sharing information with other states. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, because we don't look at the activities of the CST all that frequently, uh, I wouldn't comment, though, on the uh, legal framework uh, that governs the activities of the CSE. And that legal framework is, is extremely slim. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know whether the activities... Uh, 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 are consistent with uh, privacy safeguards and, and human rights because the institution in question has very broad authority uh, to uh, to collect uh, information. Uh, it's true that uh, the CST commissioner over the years uh, has looked at the activities of the CSC and successive commissioners uh, have said with exception a year or two ago, that the activities of the CSC uh, are lawful. So that's, that's reassuring. <clears throat> but in my report of this year, uh, I recommend that uh, this legal framework, which is extremely vague and permissive, uh, uh, could now contain certain privacy safeguards. I think that would be an important development.
0: In May of 2015, you announced four strategic privacy priorities, uh, the economics of personal information, government surveillance, reputation and privacy, and the body as information. Uh, one of those uh, uh priorities that really stood out to me, especially as a, as a millennial, was reputation and privacy. It seems that a lot of young Canadians are particularly worried about this online, uh, not only with cases of cyberbullying, but also trying to get a job down the line. They're worried that a, a, a Facebook post that they posted down uh, a couple of years back might affect them. You mentioned uh, in your report that the right to be forgotten, uh, something that was passed in Europe, is something that might be considered here in Canada. What's your personal take on that?
1: Well, we uh, were consulting on this. Uh, we have received the submissions from uh, twenty-five or thirty uh, individuals or organizations. We'll take the time to analyze this properly. Most people who wrote to us uh, were of the view that uh, in North America, with the importance of the freedom of, of freedom of expression. Uh, that right to be forgotten might not be uh, consistent with Canadian values, including uh, freedom of expression. So that's that's a legitimate concern that was raised. uh, But at the same time, we need to take measures to protect the reputation of individuals. So it's another difficult challenge to face. Uh, we haven 't completed our analysis, but we will do so
0: There's another uh strategic in, in the
1: meantime in the meantime I would encourage uh of course individuals to be care- very careful with what they they put on the internet because uh that that is the 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 first step that leads to uh, information being on the net, and as some people say, the net never forgets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, if your reputation, if your reputation is uh, is uh, uh, affected uh, adversely at some point because of something you put uh, on the net uh, on the spur of the moment. Uh, it, it's possible to prevent these things.
0: Uh, another strategic priority that I, I have to commend you for, actually, uh, is uh, the body as information. It seems like a really progressive view of understanding how technology is changing and the privacy rights that those uh, that those changes might pose to Canadians. These are things that we might not necessarily think about, but things like Fitbit connecting biometric information about yourself might affect you down the line or, or it might be exposed. Uh, it might expose uh, sensitive information about yourself. Um, what drove you to identify this as a specific priority that your office should focus on going forward? Well,
1: information about the body is particularly sensitive. Uh, because it may reveal uh, your medical conditions, for instance, uh, or but also because uh, information coming from your body, DNA, uh, fingerprints, iris scans, uh, is inherently personal. So you can change a password, uh, you can change other protective measures and information you put on the Internet, but you cannot change your fingerprints or your iris scans. So there, there's a direct link between these technologies and the protection of personal information, and the fact that you may want to be anonymous in certain activities that you have on the net. So that, that's the that's that's one big consideration. Uh, what we're doing, uh, because this is a fast-evolving area as well, uh, we're we're trying to uh, do some research and, and test uh, what these new uh, devices can obtain in terms of information and where, where is it sent to? Uh, who, who is it shared with? So at this point, we're, we know that this is an important issue, uh, but we're essentially researching Uh, the ability and the business models behind these devices so that we can uh, give uh, good advice to Canadians on how to protect themselves.
0: It's funny, things like that, most Canadians wouldn't even think about the privacy implications of their Fitbit. But I find that a lot of Canadians are naturally conditioned sometimes to figure the worst, you know, Like, for example, thinking that, you know, oh, well, if this information can be collected, it will be used against me. Is that natural condition among Canadians to to be worried about their privacy information and sort of to catastrophize some of these effects? Does it reflect the actual, is that, sorry, is that working against a lot of the work, uh, the positive work that your office is trying to do and that the Canadian government is trying to do to try to uh, inform Canadians about um, privacy risks? Uh,
1: another good question. I would say uh, it may not be necessary to think of the worst-case scenario, but it is not a, it, it's a good reflex to think about why am I being asked for this information? Is it really necessary for the service that I'm obtaining? Who will it be shared with? How will this information, uh, particularly if it's related to your medical conditions or your health condition, who will it be shared with, will it be protected? These are all good questions to ask yourself before you decide to use uh, a device like this and to to share your personal information. So you don't need to uh, necessarily worry about the worst but you should not be, uh, also overly optimistic. So think hard about, uh, where this information will go, whether it's appropriately protected before you actually, uh, provide your personal information, uh, and use devices
0: like this. So lastly, I know this might be a bit of a metaphysical question, but do you think that Canada is moving in the right direction when it comes to privacy rights?
1: I think we have uh, many people in business It. And the legal framework, particularly on the public service, on the public sector side, is woefully out of date. So, are we in the right direction? We have what it takes to, to do the right thing. Uh, I'm just concerned that uh, in a number of elements, uh, we're not where we need to be.
0: Commissioner Terry, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Commissioner Terrien also wrote an article to go along with this podcast interview. So if you want to check that out, just follow the link in the podcast description. And just a small bit of housekeeping before we end the podcast. Following the rush of three episodes in the past two weeks, including last week's special edition episode with the Prime Minister, the Policy Options podcast will be back to its usual bi weekly schedule starting Tuesday, October 18th. If you have a suggestion for an author or topic you want to hear on the podcast, you can hit us up on our socials. We're at IRPP on Twitter. IRPP slash policy options on Facebook, and our email address is IRPP at IRPP.org. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.